Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. ScriptRunner is a great solution to centrally manage PowerShell scripts and standardize and automate IT tasks via a graphical user interface for help desk or end users. Check that out on scriptrunner.com. My name is Tobias Zimmergren, and I'm back with Yussi Roine. What's up? Hey, Toby. I am in the process of planning for our family road trip in California this upcoming summer. So in, in just a few more months, the kids are finally old enough that we can, or at least at least we feel that we can do a bit more driving, uh, a bit more sightseeing instead of quickly getting to the hotel, quickly getting to the pool. So on the list, we have national parks, Venice Beach, the Hollywood sign, and I'm hopeful that we'll find time to visit Las Vegas and the Grand Canyon also. The fun thing is that I've seen all of these. The kids have not seen any of these. So it's fun going to see the same places again without needing to stress that much. If I get to see everything, it's more about managing if we have food and where do we have breakfast and where's the pool and where do we fill up the car. And I'm, I'm looking time to, to, to get some time off from work from the podcast as well, and, and all other obligations in life. And I'm adding a small challenge for myself. I'm aiming to pack as light as possible. So normally I have like a separate bag for my gadgets, separate luggage bag for my clothing. And now I'm, I'm planning on going with just three t-shirts, flip-flops. That's mostly it. And, and let's see how it goes. I can always go and buy something on panic, but I'm, I'm trying to sort of have a holiday with, with less moving parts, if you will. I think that sounds nice. I'm not so sure I like to you know, take a, a vacation from the podcast thing, though. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll see how that goes. So we'll have yeah. to work up a buffer. <laughs> a buffer or I will dial in from Las Vegas. There's a huge background noise. Yeah, yeah, let's do this quickly because I really need to hit the pool. Yeah. No, no, uh, I think you should enjoy that because I'm, I'm also going to enjoy some downtime and vacation. So uh, we'll definitely manage that. It might be a good time to bring in some guests. So when, when you're not here, I can have a guest on the show. When I'm not there, you can have a guest on the show. So anyone tuning in and, and thinking, whoa, I would like to have, uh, you know, I, I have something to talk about. I would love to be a guest on the show. Then just reach out on Twitter, you know, where to find us. So that's settled. Now, what I've been up to lately then is... Not so much what I have been up to lately, other than I'm planning something that I will do imminently. So in, in two days, I will go on a three-day well-deserved vacation solo. And so we're doing a good job in our family to ensure that we stay healthy in mind and body. And recently, we had like a, a lack of sleep in the, the entire family, we had a lack of sleep due to the smallest one waking up a lot during the night. And that is a result of being introduced to kindergarten. So usually that happens. We had that with our uh, four-year-old as well when she was introduced to kindergarten. And that can last anywhere from a few days to a few weeks uh, because there's so many new impressions, many things that they discover on a daily basis. Uh, so my better half, uh, she was away for three days recently visiting a friend and they did some spa treatments over the course of three days. So now I might go on a few uh, long hikes in nature and then hike back to or ahead to a hotel each day instead of sleeping in the woods, because sleeping in a hotel probably ensures I get proper sleep, 
while sleeping in the woods uh, usually means you don't get that good of a sleep, at least not for me. So long hikes, daytime, maybe 30 kilometers, which is a pretty long hike when you have a lot of gear, because I always bring my cooking equipment and cast iron pans and things like really heavy stuff, ridiculous in a way, but I love cooking. So that's, uh, that's worth it. And then it's nice to sleep in a, in a proper bed at night. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I'm planning to do. So in a future episode, I will catch you up on how that went. If I'm there for the future episode, if I'm not, then I'm still lost in the woods somehow and you have to send someone to find me. This sounds exciting. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to, to encourage you to do a hike with just three t-shirts and, and flip-flops. That would be much more lightweight to travel, but I get the idea just just the other day we were we were thinking when did we actually last did a real sort of overnight hiking or or, or trekking trip and it's it's been years so perhaps not in california though but perhaps this summer we have time to do that as well so this week we will be talking about operational excellence in the azure well architected framework so we've had a couple of episodes, I think at least a couple on 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 a, on a WAF, the well-architected framework, and this week it will be about operational excellence. I have no idea what it is beyond just don't reboot your VMs during business hours. <laughs> is there anything else? There's there's a few things more, and, and let me prepare you that I mean I I work with operations a lot. So I have a lot to say here, but like this framework, and just to take a step back there, it's the well architecture framework has these uh, that you call them reliability, security, cost optimization, operational excellence, and performance efficiency. We talked about cost optimization and performance efficiency, I believe. Today is operational excellence. And this is a framework with best practices and things you should consider in operations. It's not a like a, a list saying, if you don't do these things, you're doing it wrong. But it's more like a checklist and a framework to use when implementing things. Or if you're already in the cloud and you want to optimize something, uh, there are some really good thoughts in this framework. So uh, just taking a look and, and taking the operational excellence pillar for a spin, what they say is that you apply reliable, predictable, and automated operation processes to your architecture to keep an application running in production. Right, this is a very long sentence. Uh, but essentially, let's focus on ensuring that things keep working, right? Uh, back to what you said, don't reboot the VM or don't reboot your, your service, because uh, that, that would be a single point of failure unless you have a load balancer and all this uh, set up. So think of operational excellence as a function in your business that can help you. So by experience, this comes down to things like disciplined execution and, and focusing on the positive outcomes like, are we solving the right problems and things like that? So you can always measure things. Now, that's, of course, leadership talking and, and thinking about how do we manage the strategy of this. But trying to trickle down like the key points from operational excellence. And again, I, I iterate, we will not be able to talk about all the things in this pillar of the framework because there is a lot. And I have a lot to say about every single thing here by my experience. So I will try to do the high level of what this is and why it's important to think about. And then, of course, use the show notes, click the link, go to the pillar, take a look, read about it, and then see if there's something relevant for you in your situation. So it's, it's about operations and ensuring things keep running, right? So with a great DevOps or DevSecOps process, 
many of these things become a lot easier to manage um, in a way. And a lot of these things maybe are already ticked in your company. So you have like a, a few design principles. And one would be optimizing build and release processes. And that's about provisioning with uh, infrastructure as code or IAC. So you don't do it manually because that's error prone. Uh, you build and release with continuous integration, CICD, continuous deployment or de continuous delivery. Um, instead, again, of doing manual deployments or scripted deployments that you run by hand, you use automated testing methods and you avoid uh, config drift through configuration as code. And config drift is usually if you have, like we talked about in a previous episode, I'm operating multi-region data centers. I'm operating solutions in many different places. Some of these things have the same config set up in their region. Um, you know, they need to be configured on the same tier, on the same sizes, maybe. Maybe they need to be configured in, in a certain way. And this configuration needs to be iterated across each of the five or 10 regions or whatever we're operating. Now, you can avoid something called config drift through configuration as code. So again, infrastructure as code, important. Configuration as code, also important. So you ensure that things are not done manually, but you do this through code. So there's a lot of things here, and that was just one of the de design principles. And um, there's four more of those that I just want to high-level talk about, and it's understanding operational health, coming back to monitoring everything. In a previous episode, we talked about uh, Azure Managed Grafana. We have many times briefed on and talked about Azure Monitor, Log Analytics, Application Insights. You know, how do you ensure that things are working? And you need to understand that your build and release processes are working. So you need to understand the operational health of those. Infrastructure health, and that's essentially your Azure services, cloud vendor health, if you use other clouds, third-party services and their health, so on and so forth. Everything that you have tied into your delivery or to your system needs to be monitored. You also have application health with App Insights, Azure Monitor, Log Analytics, and things like that. And application health is like, is the application itself running? The infrastructure might be configured properly, securely, exactly the way we want it. But if the application is not healthy, maybe it contains bugs or whatever issue, then that also needs to be monitored and, and taken care of. So, uh, the, you know, I have three more of those principles that comes from the operational excellence uh, pillar of this framework. The next one would be rehearse recovery and practice failure, right? You need to practice failure. And I, I know we talked about this, um, I don't recall the number, uh, 108th, I think, controlled chaos with Azure Chaos Studio. So use chaos engineering, right? And that's about practicing failure. Ensure that you inject failure. Make sure you can fail the services and then see what happens. Can you recover? That's why you should rehearse recovery and practice failure. So you run um, disaster, recover, disaster recovery drills regularly then you rehearse failure to validate the effectiveness of recovery processes. And then you kind of ensure that the teams you're working with, they're familiar with their responsibilities. And that's important. And here, again, I can, I know we talked about this in previous episodes as well. Define your RASI or your RACI, however you pronounce it. So your responsibilities, accountabilities, and consult me about, inform me about matrix. So you know, and everyone in your team and everyone in the other teams know who is responsible and accountable for when the system fails. So everyone knows how and what action they need to take. Uh, and then, of course, document past failures and automate the remediation, if you can, uh, from those failures. 
because oftentimes when something fails, it's because misconfiguration or misdeployment or something happened that that was indeed in our control, then we can avoid that by automating in, in the future. The next kind of principle here would be embracing continuous operational improvement, right? Never settle for what you have. Just ensure that you always look out for the next thing you can optimize or evolve your processes over time. So this is not just, I think this ties in, at least for me, this ties in a little bit to the cloud adoption framework as well, which is more also about processes and how you get things done. So evolve your processes over time and optimize your inefficiencies and associated processes and things like that. And again, learn from your failures. So anytime you fail, learn from that, make uh, uh, RCA or root cost analysis, figure out why it failed, document that, and then try to like continuously improve the operational um, excellence in that area. And of course, continuously evaluate new opportunities to improve. You should never stop doing that. At all times, you should say, well, this is taking too long. This is not an optimized process. And the way we do things here is not you know, designed well enough. We should think about that continuously. And I, I think that's really good to think about. And then the final kind of design principle would be um, use loosely coupled architecture. And this is perhaps one of my favorite. Over the years, we managed to migrate everything we have from like the monolith architectures. We had a, a huge solution, maybe in Visual Studio, and inside of it, you had 60 projects, uh, not very much microservices, just monolith. And then you operated that as a web worker role or a web role or whatever the, the roles were in the classic compute resources were called. Uh, not super optimal. So today, what you should think about is like a modern architecture, like microservices, loosely coupled services like serverless. And you can combine that with circuit breaker patterns, load leveling, throttling patterns, which of course you need to think about in a healthy application and reliable application. And when we talk about reliability, we're going to talk a lot about that. And then you can complement that with advanced deployment strategies like canary deployment, blue-green deployment, stagger deployment. All of these things are, of course, deployment strategies that are also listed. And we'll put a link in the show notes to all of those things. Again, there is no way we can brief and talk about all these things in this one episode. So taking a step back, talking about these design principles, what's in the operational excellence uh, framework or part of the framework in this pillar and why it's important. So of course, then knowing about these principles, how do we move from what we just talked about and put that into practice? I guess that's the next question. Before I do that, I have talked a lot about this and I have so many things on my mind. Is there any part of these things that we just talked about that you do on your, in your daily business or with your customers today? So there's quite a bit of things that I get involved with customers in, in implementation projects, but it's, it's not as cohesive as you make it sound. And this is not to imply that it couldn't be. It's, it's more of a, I'm perhaps not exposed to all of the angles here because I'm often involved a lot in the envisioning phase and the planning and designing and, and, and the strategy. And then somebody else typically takes over to implement something. And if there's an issue, then somebody calls me and says, hey, we need to have a talk on this. And then finally, when we get to deploying this, I get to have a further look on it. So let, 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 let's see what we actually have in here. I really like this tying the operational excellence together with the DevOps 
approach. So you, do you fail before we move forward? But do you fail that in order to do well-architected framework properly on Azure, that you also need to design everything related to DevOps in the sense, deployment and continuous integration according to said best practices as well? Or could you do these design principles but not really bother with DevOps beyond let's run a simple deployment script and call it a day? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And and I think I mentioned also before that it's not a blueprint of like written commandments, right? It's a, it's recommendations. Um, and there's a lot of recommendations and not all of them will fit your purposes. Um, so again, you have to evaluate like where are we with this company or this project and what can we make use of? What can we change? And of course, you can run a super slim DevOps where you only commit source code and then it automatically deploys and that's it. Um, but of course, if you really want to have operational excellence, which is what we're talking about, that means not that things are operating. It means it's operating excellently, right? It's always working. It is reducing issues, reducing bugs, ensuring that you get a better reliability, ensuring you get a, a better performance, ensuring that you have things tested and that you're prepared for failures. It's about being excellent in operating things, not just operating. So I think to really master operating your solutions, you should consider reading pretty much everything in the operational excellence documentation. But no, you don't have to adopt all of it. You don't have to take a look at every single thing and say, well, we need to implement all of these things. And exactly like you said, also, you mentioned that maybe you're in the envisioning and strategy and planning phase, and then you're not in the implementation phase. And of course, the way I sit today, I am in the strategy and also envisioning strategy phase, but I also help implement a lot of the things we have. And, I, and then I also operate them. So I do a lot of that. And of course, I have a big team to help out. But I'm in a position where I work with product in a product company, which means I get to kind of be part of all of these steps. So I can more easily implement a lot of the uh, recommendations from here because I know about them. So I can keep those things alive in the dialogues across teams as it trickled down to, to different uh, departments. Um, but I understand, of course, when you're working as a consultant or if you have multiple projects and you're having a small part of that one project, it's not as easy maybe to be as coherent or, or yeah, to ensure that everything gets done exactly according to best practices. But I know in the, in the other pillars, we also talked about the trade-offs. And, and this is also a trade-off. Like, what, do you need to read everything and understand everything and implement all of it? No, you don't. You don't need chaos engineering. You don't need like regular disaster recovery drills to launch a proof of concept or a pilot. Should you consider it? Yes. Should you consider it long-term? Definitely. Do you need it for operational excellence? Yes, you do. But if you just want things to fly, you don't. So there's always the trade-off where you have to, for yourself, decide, is it more important to achieve operational excellence or is it more important to deliver on time according to the budget and the security and, and cost constraints we have? Usually this is, and I think we talked about that in both the other episodes, we talked about the, the WAF with the trade-offs. Usually it comes down to all the customers I talk to, comes down to, to we want to focus on cost and security. We need to th make things secure. That's priority one. Priority two is we need to make it cheap, right? We need to optimize cost wherever we can. 
And those two doesn't work well together, right? Because to increase the security, you need to enable better security features, threat management, and all these things. That's going to increase your cost. And then on the other side, you want to decrease the cost. And the same thing goes here, right? There's always a trade-off. Do you want to achieve 100% operational excellence? Sure. But what is 100% operational excellence? There is no such thing in my book. There's only where am I right now? What can I improve, right? And then you make a move towards that. And of course, you can tie that to different goals and OKRs and, and make them measurable KRs and things like that. But in the end, it's about continuous improvement and ensuring that we are better tomorrow than we are today. And, and that's really the, the gist of it. This, this makes sense. I'm, I'm buying all of this, but I also realize there's, there's a lot of aspects and a lot of angles. And if you are a hardcore developer, you often approach this whole thing we've discussed so far with, yeah, let me do microservices. I don't really care about anything else. So you need people with different backgrounds, different skill sets. So, and, and, and they need to pull together and perhaps buy into this model of here's the best practice. Perhaps we pick and choose the, 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 the elements and the aspects here that we can. But moving forward, um, so, so how do we put this theory into practice? Are there like elements or areas or, or categories of things to consider? Yeah. Um, okay. Brace yourself. I have a lot of thoughts on this as well. <laughs> uh, there's, there's of course, a lot of things we can do here to, to ensure that we strive for operational excellence. Uh, first of all, it's about automation, right? Try to automate as much as you can to so automate your business solutions. So uh, I think it also says in the doc somewhere, like automation of technical processes is done to perform the tasks humans do only better and quicker. Right, so this is perfect for, for repetition. Anything that you do more than once can be repeated. Anything that can be repeated can be automated. And there you have to make a decision. Uh, do I know that I'm gonna do this one or two or three times tops over the lifespan of the entire project? Then you can make a decision, maybe not, maybe. But if it's something that continuously happens and, and that repeats, automate it. There is no, no point in not automating it unless it's extremely complex. Um, but again, if it's extremely complex, all the more reason to figure out how to automate it because the human error uh, cadence will, will go up. So everything is, is prone to error, especially if humans are involved. Um, you know, I've, I've done my fair deal of mistakes. I went in, I configured something, and I thought I did it the right way, but I forgot to attach a managed identity or I forgot to do something else because yeah, I was missing in the documentation or I skipped a step in the documentation. I just continued without reading that line in the docs because I'm a human. And that's what happens. So I can't really blame the docs. It was my fault. I missed this thing. And as a result, my service was interrupted for a brief moment. So automate everything and uh, like ensure consistency. So more manual effort, again, means more error prone. And types of automation usually includes on the inf infrastructure deployment side, ARM templates, Astro Bicep, Terraform. So just to put things into practice now. So with ARM templates, Azure Bicep, Terraform, you kind of get this uh, templatized or, or code approach to defining your infrastructure. Make use of that. We had an episode on Azure Bicep already. Um, if you haven't tuned into that, I think that's super interesting. But also ARM templates, Terraform, whatever infrastructure as code provider you want to use or, or logic you want to use, use it because that is going to help you a lot. Uh, infrastructure configuration is a different thing. 
So I talked previously about configuration drift. Uh, so maybe you set up five environments and one of them is different because you missed a step, right? Because that's what, what I did. And, and I know that happens. I've been close to doing that multiple times, again, which is why I needed to automate these things. So infra configuration or infrastructure configuration, here you can automate things using Azure VM extensions, ensuring that certain things always happen. Cloud init, if you use uh, Linux VMs, then this is a config option on first boot to ensure that specific configurations happen on, happen on those VMs. ARM scripts, uh, ARM deployment scripts, if you're using ARM template deployments, then you can uh, hook up a script to that to execute certain commands. You can use configuration management with Chef and Puppet or Azure Automation uh, state configuration, things like that. So again, to put things into practice, there are things and services and platforms and techniques you can use uh, to really ensure that you automate things because that's what it's all about. And of course, also automating your operational tasks. So like the demand for operational tasks is ever increasing patching, management of services, identity management, and so on. You know, maybe you have a new user, it needs to be configured in a certain way. Maybe you need to run some kind of automation to say that this individual or this type of user should end up in this group and it should be like this and this and this, because that's how your organization works. Automate it. Don't let the admin go and do these things manually. Um, so it's these things like operational tasks and the automation of those is difficult for optimizing and extending existing processes that you have. Uh, to deliver flexible and reliable services, lowering the cost you have because you don't have to uh, keep someone at hand to do these all the time. And of course, improve the predictability. You know that when this runs, it's going to work or it should work because it's been tested and tested and tested again. Uh, whereas opposed to if you do it manually, whatever you do today is not the same way maybe that you did it yesterday. And then the predictability goes out the window. You can do things using Azure Functions to run code without managing the underlying infrastructure, which is pretty cool. So that's one way to automate things. You can use Azure Automation. So here you use a coding language to, uh, you know, to automate your operational tasks in code and then execute on demand if you want. So there's a, a bunch of different things you can do. You can also use playbooks and have some Python scripts or PowerShell scripts, whatever you want, to to automate things, um, or or logic apps or the power platform, you know, you name it. Just think about, don't think about the technology. Because I, I started thinking now when you said, well, the developer usually wants to do things like this and this. I don't care what the developer wants to do, right? It, you know, at the end of the day, we cannot make a decision on my preference or the developer preference or the preference of someone else. We can only make decisions based on the information and data we have and then make predictable and reliable decisions moving forward if that means we need to change patterns or change strategy or implement a different service or a feature or move from Azure Functions to containers, so be it. I don't care what, what the developer thinks about that. I don't care about what someone else thinks about that. If all the data points to that and says, well, you're going to save 60% of your cost if you do this or that, that's what we need to think about doing. And the same thing here, right? It's how you automate things. It's up to you. Think about the processes. Think about how your business will be better, how the project will thrive, how you will ease things for, for the humans in your organization by automating things. Um, and at the end, it's about predictability, reliability, and, and lessening all the errors that you have. So um, yeah, that's the about automation. That I have a lot to say on, on that. Of course, we can dive into a lot of these things in detail, but I think 
to be able to fit this into one episode, we kind of have to move on from automations. But I think you get the point here, what I'm trying to to say that, you know, don't iterate things manually. If you need to do something a few times or more, then think about automating it and think about the process and the benefit of the business first, and then think, uh, you know, about the technology or the platform behind it. Because to me, that's second nature. I don't, I don't think about that. That, that. That's something that will follow based on the decision we make in the, in the first kind of uh, assessment. One of, one of the things um, that I picked up when we had Andrew Connell as a guest, when, when he was explaining his setup and the numerous different services he was utilizing, was that, that you really need to pick the best tool and best approach and, and best capability for the need instead of saying, well, let's use Azure Bicep for everything. And, and we have to bend Azure Bicep to our will so that it will resolve all of the problems. And I like the approach you have here that choose this, choose that, perhaps combine with this, perhaps use Azure Functions, perhaps use Azure Automation. And, and it's, it's also for, for what we want to achieve as opposed to, well, we have this developer and he's great with Azure Functions, but he's never used Azure Automation. So perhaps we use Azure, Azure Functions for everything. And often I do see this sort of uh, thinking, if you will, that, well, everything is, is, is designed around Azure Functions because we hate Azure Automation. And you go like, yeah, but many of the things you've built could be done more easily and they would be more maintainable in Azure Automation or something else. Yeah, yeah, but we love Azure Functions and that's where we put all of our <laughs> effort in. And, and this, again, and this is not just for developers, I see this with IT pros as well, uh, great insights. So we had automation here, uh, and at some point we need to do a refresh episode on Azure automation because there's plenty of updates there. So, so moving on from automation, what do we have next? Yeah, so, so there's two more things or two more areas, and that's re- release engineering and monitoring that I really like to, uh, to dive into a little bit. Uh, because with these three things, like automations, release engineering, and monitoring, we can achieve a lot of the things we talked about before, like the different design principles for, for operational excellence. So if we talk about release engineering, um, I will try to make this a bit shorter. Um, it's about DevOps, right? And configure your dev environments the right way, practice continuous integration, perform release testing, consider performance in your applications, evaluating release deployments, anticipate deployment issues, and then how do you deal with them? How do you roll back things? So modern release engineers has all of these obvious things like proper dev environments, source control, version control, and code change control, branches, forks, PRs, peer reviews, Azure repos or GitHub or whatever you want like all of these things. Um, so ensure that you have the correct development environments. And again, you can automate that. In a lot of cases, you can automate the setup of the development uh, environments. And then for your CI, um, your continuous integration, ensure that you have the correct pipelines and that these pipelines are uh, set up the right way with the right source control. You can have testing integration. You can have failed tests showing up there. You can have your uh, CI wrestled badges showing up there. So, and all of these things contribute to showing that, okay, we're doing a good job or something is currently failing. And these small badges, you have these for, at GitHub, you have them, you have them for Azure DevOps as well, where you can say, well, the the latest build or the latest branch did not work to build or the test didn't work, then you can flag it as red. Anything that that kind of 
does it auto automatically for you is good. And uh, another uh, other part of like the release engineering is testing. And we talked about testing a, a couple of times uh, across the podcast. And while we cannot dive into all of these types of testing, it's important to think about them. And you have to make the choice, of course, yourself in your project, in your business, whether or not you can implement some of these strategies. And you have automated testing. You have manual testing. You have acceptance testing. You have testing and experimentation in production. Uh, you have stress testing. You have business continuity testing. So there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different things you can test. Um, and, and all of them are important for different reasons. So like business continuity testing is something you don't hear a lot of developers talk about perhaps, but it's something that I talk a lot about because I am accountable and responsible for ensuring that all the operations of our systems is intact and that everything works. And that's like disaster recovery drills. It's exploratory testing. It's fault injection. And again, Azure Chaos Studio can help. So, it, you know, all kinds of testing is important. It's not just one type of testing or, or another, but all of these things help in different ways. So, of course, this, this episode is not specifically about testing, so I will not dive into these things, but release engineering is uh, a big portion of that is about testing. Um, and then, of course, you have performance, your build times, your build servers. Can you scale out your build servers? Uh, whereas to build server location in relation to the developers? Um, have you chosen the agent that best meet the performance requirements? Because what I see in a lot of organizations, they say, oh, I just, just use a hosted agent, whatever. Might be Windows, might be Linux, doesn't matter. Um, you can optimize these things and, and you know if they can scale out. And you know, do you need human intervention in your builds? Do you have CI builds? And what happens when they fail? Do you have nightly builds? Same thing there. It's not just about compiling the code, but also like ensuring that the larger test suites uh, that are like inefficient to run during the day are run regularly. Often we call these night builds um, and you have the release builds and are they doing a good job? Can you optimize something? So the, like the release engineering really comes down to ensuring that not just the system itself is healthy and we can monitor it, but like the release part of the system. How do we get things out? How do we develop and take it from a line of code into production? Like this kind of DevOps process and this portion of the DevOps process is important. So you have, of course, the deployment aspect where you have the release process, a documented release process, super important to document this. And also that you can stage your workloads with different stages. You have dev, QA, and maybe you have a UAT or user acceptance test environment and then a production environment. You have your test environments. You have logging and auditing enabled. So you can find things before they actually go live. Have you considered high availability? And then what happens when you deploy? Do you deploy to a slot and then switch the slot to avoid downtime? Or do you have multiple instances and cycle them individually? Like there's a million thoughts here on how to really achieve operational excellence. It's not just about, oh, use a GitHub action and deploy to the app service, because that means downtime, unless you have a high availability thing set up. So that's the, again, consideration. How do you ensure that? How do you, how do you make sure that you don't have the downtime? How do you make sure that you optimize this as much as you can? And of course, also release engineering comes into rolling back things, like make use of staged deployments and, if you deploy to a deployment slot or something like this and then figure out, well, that didn't work, then you can just switch back to the production slot and you're good. 
Uh, so you don't deploy everything to your production system and override whatever's there, and then you have to roll back and you have to make a new deployment to roll back. So again, coming back to microservices, if you have things designed as microservices, this becomes a lot easier as well. You can also apply desired state configuration. So depending on the resources in the workloads, you may be able to kind of use the desired state configuration to automate and govern the deployment process. Super cool, super important. And again, like all of these things, when you listen to this and when I listen to myself saying them, it's like, whoa, there's a lot of things to consider here. And this does not happen overnight. Like I've worked with the team I work with now for, I think, seven years. We have optimized things over the years, not over the weeks or months. This is something that takes time, but it takes also insights and you know understanding that we need to continuously improve. Without that realization, we will never improve. And that goes for every role in the organization. If you're a tester, if you're a developer, if you're a product manager, a project manager, uh, if, if you're a people manager, if you're a head of your team, if you're the director of something, it doesn't matter. Everyone in the organization have a kind of collective responsibility to ensure that we continuously improve. And with operational excellence, that's even more true because there is not like the developers cannot do this. The managers cannot do this. The operations team cannot do it. We all have to do it together. And it might be that someone sits on the information of what we need to do, but it cannot be implemented and enforced unless everyone has the buy-in. So we, so we get the buy-in from the developers. They understand it. But in, in any organization uh, that I'm part of and, and customers I talk to, at the end of the day, the developer usually don't have a say in what should be developed or how. If the product manager or product owner comes and say, well, this is how we need to do things, then the developer can find different ways to implement that. But the plan for what to implement is already there. When it comes to these things, I think it's important to have a true DevOps and DevSecOps process where everyone is involved. Um, because at the end of the day, like I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, it's about having healthy applications, health, healthy infrastructure, ensuring things are running reliably. To do that, if everyone in our team has a buy-in or is buying into the, to the reasons why we need to do it, it's a lot easier. But again, it doesn't happen overnight. So they, yeah, there's a lot to talk about in release engineering as well. So we talked about automation and then release engineering. And then the final thing here would be monitoring. And I know we talked about monitoring a lot also in the, in the different episodes um, throughout the, the ages here, uh, the years when we did different episodes in this podcast as well. Um, and this comes down to like monitoring in your cloud applications, monitor your stages, monitor your data sources, monitor instrumentation, um, collection and storage of that, analysis, visualization, alerting, all these things. We talked in the previous episode about Azure Managed Grafana, perfect example of how you can use a good monitoring solution to uh, stay on top of all the things you have in your solution and everything that's happening. Um, so common use cases for you know a good monitoring approach is health monitoring, right? You need to understand if your system is healthy. So I use Azure Workbooks for that. I use App Insights. I use a, really a plethora of different tools, but I use Azure Workbooks to kind of tie the data into a single place. Um, and then I can understand if the system is healthy. I get my logs. I get my different signals. I can analyze the health data coming in. I can see if I meet my performance targets because maybe I have availability targets saying the web page cannot load slower than 500 milliseconds or whatever it is. I can verify my non-functional requirements and, and that they actually are met. 
so that's health monitoring, super important. But then you'll have also a different type of monitoring, which is usage monitoring. Um, and the why here would be to understand what features are used and what you may not need and, and things you can retire or sunset and also what needs some more focus. So you go into production, you have a thousand customers or a thousand users using the system, and then you see nobody is using feature ABC over here. Then you can think about retiring that because we don't want to maintain legacy code and legacy features that nobody actually use. We want to focus on building what the customer needs, right? Not what we think is a cool thing to have, but instead, what does the customer need? Everything else we can start looking at if we need to retire or move them away, or if we see that a lot of customers are using a feature we did not anticipate to be as popular, we can also put more effort into that. So usage monitoring, super important. And you can do this with App Insights. You can do it with third-party uh, usage monitoring tools as well. Uh, what you use, of course, is up to you. I use App Insights for a lot of things uh, in these areas. And the reason also for, for using that is everything stays within Azure. I control the data. I control the data flow where it is. So I can keep it in the same re region. And then for compliance reason, uh, data sovereignty stays intact. And that's also important. Another why for usage monitoring is to collect statistics of how people use and behave and act on the web app. So again, maybe you have a mobile app, maybe you have a web app, maybe you have a shopping cart, whatever. And maybe you see that people use a feature you did not anticipate. And this information is gold. If you don't see this, if you don't get this information, how do you know what to focus on? Then you just have assumptions. And assumptions does not build a healthy product. Um, and then, of course, you can also keep uh, usage monitoring to enforce quotas. So if you understand the usage of your users, you can then enforce quotas more easily per user and so on. Um, ergo, throttling. So it's not just, we talk about throttling sometimes uh, where we are getting throttled by Azure for certain things. But this comes down to us throttling the users. Because if we have thousands of simultaneous users coming in and they're trying to make an API call or whatever, and they're trying to abuse it, or maybe they, they put up an automation saying, I want to run this API call every second. Well, that's going to hammer my system. So then you can implement throttling. And you can only do that if you can monitor the usage, because otherwise you have no idea. You will just get a bunch of requests, but you don't know where they're coming from, who's, who's making them. But if you can monitor those requests and tie them to a specific user or a specific account, then you can implement throttling as well, things like that, or quotas. So how do we do that? Well, what does each user do in the app and what, what volume of data in storage does a user occupy and what resources have they accessed and like the number of requests of any user or any system or the system you have as a whole, all these things tie into usage monitoring. So uh, again, App Insights, Log Analytics, perfect for that. There are as well third-party uh, vendors that do usage monitoring and you can see how users behave and things like that. We kind of stick to a lot of the things that exist in Azure. But that said, you're not locked into that. Again, business requirements first. Think about the business requirements. If there's a way within Azure to figure it out, great. If you need to look outside of Azure to get a really good usage monitoring for your specific application, that's okay. Just take a look at the requirements, see how they tie to your business. Make sure you get the data. That's the important thing. How does user use this? How are people using it? How is the system behaving under duress of these users, things like that. And the the other type of, like, so there's four types of monitoring that, that I usually 
look at health monitoring. We talked about usage monitoring. We just talked about. Then we have issue tracking and auditing. So for issue tracking, it's like figuring out solutions uh, to unexpected events in the system. So anything that we didn't catch during testing and Q and A uh, or QA, uh, we can figure that out when we find the unexpected systems uh, events in our system. And to do that, we need a ticketing system or issue tracking. So we need to monitor those and you can use Azure DevOps, you can use GitHub, you can use Jira, you can use whatever you want. Doesn't really matter. As long as you have a good ticketing and issue tracking system where you can monitor those things. So it's not just about monitoring the signals coming into the system, but also monitoring the status of those tickets that you get. And so issue tracking kind of involves managing the issues, associating those to an underlying problem, notifying your customers about it, uh, inform about the resolutions, things like that. And requirements are usually things we need to know, um, like what happened at the time, what task was the user doing, what sequence of events was executed, and symptoms of the problem, if any, um, any warning or error messages, things like that. And I think for, for a lot of people, this is something that kind of comes naturally, because if you develop a product or if you're in a, in a dev project, you usually have a ticketing system. Uh, where you might have bugs, you might have your work items and everything in a shared system, and that's fine. Just make sure that you have that tracked because you can, for example, in Azure DevOps, you can tie a ticket to specific events or correlate them and then link directly to, for example, in App Insights, here's the, here's the problematic event that happened. Take a look and you can kind of review the signal and review the traces and, and things like that. It's pretty nice. Um, and then the other type of monitoring is auditing. And why is that important? Well, there may be legal implications that require us to collect audit logs. And, and we have that. We're going through a lot of compliance stuff like SOC 2 compliance, ISO 27001 compliance. And for some compliance and, and regulatory frameworks uh, and for the regulatory requirements, uh, there may be these kind of legal, legal implications unless we collect audit logs of a certain type in a certain format. So in addition to that, it's a great way to kind of provide evidence linking to any user or customer's actions within the system, because that also happens that someone is blaming something and maybe blaming the product, maybe blaming someone at the other company, maybe blaming someone else. But if we have an audit log saying, no, actually you deleted this thing two days ago using this account at this time point, using this action, and we can see it here, you have a, an actual audit trace that's beneficial. And that is exactly the same as if you, as an administrator, go in and you delete your resource group and then say, well, where's my resource? It's gone. And you can go then into the activity log in Azure and see, oh, actually, this, this person deleted their own resource group two days ago. And, and the reason I'm mentioning the audit monitoring and audit logging and that you should have it within your solution is it's super important. We've had so many times someone come and say, you know what? Your solution deleted my resource group or something like that. Now, our solution cannot even do that because we don't have permission to do anything like that. We don't even have permission to your, to your Azure resources. So to avoid that entire discussion, audit logging is great, but we did a troubleshooting together with them, took a look, checked their audit logs within Azure and saw, well, actually you deleted it two days ago using your user account from this computer that you're sitting at right now. Um, and then it kind of became clear, oh, right. I thought I deleted the dev resource group, but this was actually my entire production workload. Okay, that's audit logging is good, right? Avoid the blame game. So, so auditing is not about blaming. Auditing is about figuring out 
what actually happened and then figuring out the solution to it. Uh, one thing that I, I take to heart is we never put blame. We never have blame. We never put blame. We don't blame systems. We don't blame code. We don't blame individuals. We don't blame anything. We just figure out that, whoop, this went sideways. How do we ensure that does not happen again? And how do we kind of mitigate that in the future? And how do we realize uh, or do we realize how we ended up there? All of those things come also back to auditing everything that we do. So how can you do auditing? Well, you can do um, using many approaches, app insights, log analytics, tracing, event logs, activity logs, security logs on the network, and so on. So again, business requirements first, and then the technical implementation. But super important for both legal reasons, compliance reasons, but also to avoid the blame game, because that will go around. If you operate things at scale in the cloud and something goes sideways, or a customer says, well, I was using the product, but now my thing is gone. And then you can go in and say, well, you actually deleted this from this computer, uh, from that IP address so and so many days ago. If, of course, that is something you're legally allowed to collect in your audit logs, which uh, is a whole completely different story about compliance and security. But I, I think those, those things kind of sum up the thoughts, the high-level high thoughts I have on operational excellence. And as you can hear here, I can go on and on and on about this. There's a lot of angles and there's a lot of things to think about. But I am really, I, I am really excited about this because I, I do this for a living. Of course, it's something that I cannot stress enough to put focus on. Now, again, the well-architected framework and operational excellence, it's a great guide. It's a great documentation resource. Go there. It's not a rule book saying you have to do everything like this and you don't even have to have, have or do half of the things I mentioned today in this episode. But it's good to understand that there's a lot of work involved in making reliable solutions that operate excellently, if you will. You know, and, and you don't expect that overnight. Don't expect it over a month. This takes time. You need to optimize your processes. You need to optimize your workflows. You need to implement automations. You need to fine-tune things. You need to... Uh, ensure you have reliability, you need to enforce new patterns, you need to maybe shift to a different pattern for some of your workloads. There's a lot of things involved in achieving this. So it's not something you will do overnight, but instead see it as a guideline for how you can gradually improve things over time. And, and that's how I use it. And, and again, now I talk so much that my jaw is, is literally falling off my head. So uh, back to you, UC. What Did that make sense? And, and what did I miss? It, it all makes sense, and I'm just ingesting all the ideas and thoughts here. What I love about this is that it's not about enabling a specific technology service on Azure, like, yeah, let's go with App Insights and we're done with monitoring. It's, it's more about deciding and, and planning and analyzing over time that, okay, perhaps we do health monitoring like this, perhaps we do log analytics like this, perhaps we do App Insights like this and then evolving from that over the weeks and over the months. Occasionally, uh, if I'm accessing a Microsoft provided service on, on the web, uh, I occasionally press the F F12 on the browser just to see what sort of telemetry they're picking up. And there's always app insights. It could be any type of service. There's always uh, usage monitoring, there's always health monitoring happening, there's always auditing happening, both on the client side, and I would presume on the server side as well. So in, in that sense, the missing piece here, 
obviously is security, but we have a separate pillar for that. So let's not open up security just yet. But I know that once we get there and we start talking about security here and there, we sort of circle back to some of the elements here. Like, okay, we need to do health monitoring in terms of security as well. So I, I like that we have a proper framework, which obviously is a huge bunch of guidance and best practices. But as you said, it's not about uh, accepting them at face value and let's implement everything. That would take a couple of years, but instead let's start with something. And then when we grow to support this framework, also align our future designs based on that. Alrighty, lots of, of content to digest. Uh, we'll be sure to put in the show notes a couple of additional links to many of the topics we talked about here. Um, the last thing is the unexpected question. And I I do have a lengthy question for you, Toby. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked a lot today for 53 minutes or something. So I'm, I'm happy for a lengthy question so I can just indulge and listen for a bit. Sounds good. And, and you're going to go with a short answer as well. So, so initially this was a single question, then it sort of evolved into, into this, this dual faceted question. And now it's back to a single question. So back when, when Windows Vista came out, I think it was late 2006, it had the start menu, obviously. But within the start menu, there was a shutdown sub menu. And in there, I recall, was it seven or nine options? Shutdown, log off, hibernate, sleep, switch user, lock it, change the password. It was just an endless list of things for the user. And I remember reading then, and this was probably somebody from Microsoft blogging, and they said it took 27 software engineers to implement that sub menu with seven or nine options because it was so complex. Wow. Uh, so this is not about Windows Vista, but this is setting the context. We're getting to the question now. So today, if you open a terminal and run nslookup facebook.com to query their, their, their main name server, DNS records, you get both the IPv6 and the IPv4 addresses back. And the interesting bit is the IPv6 address. For Facebook, it is something like 2A03 colon blah, blah, blah. But in between those, they, they've cleverly added one entity, FACE colon B00C, which reads Facebook in the IPv6 address. It literally has Facebook in it. So what are your thoughts on this? considering Microsoft possibly had 27 engineers working on the shutdown menu. What are your thoughts on this? And how many people do you think it took for Facebook to set it up? Well, uh, first of all, I don't even know where to start. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I obviously always navigate to Facebook, uh, at which I don't even have an account using the IP6 address because they have the name in it. So. No, I, I don't actually have a lot of thoughts on that. I think it's you know a bit of vanity, of course, from Facebook. And it's a pretty geeky and fun thing to do. How many engineers or how many people did it take? Well, summing up marketing and because probably some marketing uh, and, and a lot of engineers, I don't know, 
maybe 10 or 20 or 50 people. And, or just they made one phone call and said to, to whoever is controlling the, the IPv6 range to say, hey, we're going to buy this range. We need this and make it happen. And, and I don't know. I, I really generally have no idea. Usually we work with IPv4 addresses still for most things. I very seldom see an IPv6 address, obviously, unless you do an NS lookup and you get the full results. I don't care. Sure, it's cool. I don't care. It doesn't justify a business requirement in my book. So I, I'm having a hard time tying it to anything other than vanity at this point. Uh, but I, I will go with a short answer. 15 engineers. Okay. Okay. Sounds reasonable. I, I like to think that perhaps they have this one super sharp engineer, a bit rogue character who just went on a Friday night. Yeah, let me change this. And, and, and he was snickering <laughs> to himself and nobody has noticed until oh, I that, did. That's I why did. they had this huge outage of, of a full day <laughs> last year. <laughs> this, this could be it. All righty. So thank you again for joining. A lot of information in this episode. We still have a couple of pillars to go on VAF in, in, in the future episodes. Digest this. Uh, we'll do something else in between and, and then come back to well architecture framework in the future. Thanks and hear you next week. All right. See you then.